Hello once again everyone and welcome back to Faith in Humanity. This week we are going to be discussing world hunger in addition to discussing um, the broader picture of global poverty which is the theme for this podcast. So today I am going to start out with showing you um, a clip from a TED talk with Chase Sova. So um, it's a, a fairly long clip, um, but it's really important stuff and it touches upon um, whether or not we are really doing what it takes to end world hunger um, and if we're ready to end world hunger, if the world is ready. And so I found that this was a really important um, thing to share on this channel. And so I'm going to play that for you all and then um, we'll do a little bit of a discussion afterward. So have a listen and I hope you enjoy. So I stopped calling farmers farmers. And I want to tell you why. Think about what it is that farmers do. Grow food and soil. That's the only thing on this planet that takes death and decay and converts it back into life. And to fuel that process, they harvest bundles of energy and light from a distant star. Farmers are not really farmers at all. They're photon engineers. And I've been living and working alongside these mad scientists my entire life. I grew up in northern Wisconsin, some virtual patchwork of family farms. Spent the early part of my career working with smallholder farmers in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And now, I live and work in Washington, D.C. I spend my days reminding lawmakers of the miracle of food production and of the dire consequences of getting it wrong. I'm here today to talk about ending global hunger in our lifetime, to put our successes and failures into context, and to remind my generation in particular that a zero-hunger world is not out of reach. And of this, I'm absolutely certain. We are winning the long game in the fight to end hunger. Take a look at these two headlines. World hunger is increasing thanks to wars and climate change. World faces unprecedented hunger as famine threatens four countries. Steven Pinker, the renowned psychologist, just recently released his latest book. And in it, he describes something called the availability heuristic. This is the idea that people tend to estimate the likelihood of an event by the ease at which instances come to mind. Headlines like this, well, they come at us at warp speed today. A never-ending stream of push notifications to these cell phones that never, ever leave our hands. And if we were to allow the headlines of the day to dictate our assessment of global hunger, well, then we would be overwhelmed by our apparent failure. Because this is what hunger looks like over the past three years. This is what you're seeing in the headlines. 20 million people on the brink of starvation. After decades of decline, global hunger on the rise again. But I want to give you a little context. Because this is the general trend in hunger over just the past 10 years. We exist just beyond the end of this graph, at the end of a long line that is slowly but surely bending towards zero. This is the number of people who have died from famine over 150 years. Again, we exist at the bottom of the graph there in that growing valley on the right side. It's when we look at 
our progress in the long arc of human history, that we see just how close we are to ending hunger for good. The author S. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, the true test of intelligence is the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts at the same time. And that is fundamentally true of global hunger today. Because over the past 20 years, we've pulled 200 billion people off of hunger. Yes, people still die from famine, but far fewer than ever before thanks to early warning systems and improved humanitarian responses. We have never had better tools to fight global hunger than we do today. Yet the headlines of the day speak of a rise in the absolute number of hungry people, an unprecedented four looming famines, and more hungry people displaced from their homes because of violence, conflict, and persecution than any other time since the Second World War. And yet I'm here to tell you why I'm optimistic. Because if this fight to end hunger in the modern era were a football game, well, we'd be taking a massive leap into the fourth quarter. And this is the story of how that game is played out. In the first quarter, we fought a battle against population growth. Thomas Malthus, the English philosopher, prophesied in 1798 that food production would not keep pace with growing population. As a result, we'd see resource competition, violent conflict, and mass starvation. Now, Malthusians like Thomas, they faced off against so-called cornucopians in this quarter. These are people who believed that human beings could successfully engineer their way out of the population dilemma. Now, because I'm standing here today, you know that the cornucopians prevail. The idea of me didn't die tragically back in the 18th century with my ancestors, and nor did it for any of you. In fact, when Malthus wrote his famous essay, the world was home to about a billion people. Today, we number over 7 billion. We produce about 2,500 calories for every man, woman, and child on the planet. In this first quarter, we saw land-grant colleges established in the United States. We saw the combustion engine replace animal draft labor on farms. And we saw a great revolution sweep the world. Generations after Malthus, this idea of the population bomb has been thoroughly debunked. But it brought us into the second quarter. And here, the central challenge of feeding the world was a natural continuation of the first. If we accept the fact that we can feed growing, a growing population, the next logical question is whether we can do it sustainably. Years of industrial agriculture had wreaked havoc on our environment. In fact, the same technology that we used to fuel our bombs in the Second World War had been put to work in our fields. It can take a thousand years to develop an inch of topsoil through natural processes, and we did away with a lot of it in just a matter of decades. These were incredibly fragile systems we were learning. And we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the three feet of soil directly beneath us. And that's true. David Attenborough has a great quote, quote that I really, really like. And he said, if you believe that you can have infinite growth on a finite planet, then you're either a madman or an economist. And I would add 20th century farmers to that list. But it was here in the second quarter that we started to appreciate ecological tipping points. We started talking about things like planetary boundaries. We learned that agriculture 
was responsible for 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That we were making the climate change problem worse. And in fact, all across the second quarter, the way that we were feeding people was making it fundamentally harder to feed people. So we started to roll out common sense strategies like cover cropping and zero-till agriculture. We developed new plant varieties using genetic engineering, not just for commercial pesticide resistance like you always hear, but to deal with things like saltwater intrusion from sea level rise and drought from changing rainfall patterns. It was in this second quarter that we stopped treating soil like dirt. And just like that, we were in the third quarter. And here, we finally acknowledge that there is a link between agriculture and nutrition. And as crazy as that sounds, we have long considered agriculture and nutrition as two separate concepts. But thanks to research, research into child and maternal health, we learned that a child that doesn't receive proper nutrition in their first thousand days, from conception to their second birthday, will experience a lifetime of negative effects, physical, emotional, and economic. So we developed specialized food aid products, like Plumina, that can bring a child back from the brink of starvation in a war zone or after a natural disaster. And we started to biofortify crops, just like the ones you see here, with things like vitamin A and zinc, so that we can take them out of the ground that way. And this is how we're closing up the third quarter. We've gone from simply trying to feed the world to trying to nourish the world. And across all three of these pores, it has not been by the immutable cause of physics that hunger has declined, quite the opposite. It's been through the unlikely march of human progress against overwhelming odds. Hunger hasn't declined naturally, someone had to act. It was our ancient ancestors domesticating wheat in the Fertile Crescent 10,000 years ago. It was Norman Borlaug developing dwarf wheat in a laboratory in Mexico that would spark the Green Revolution. And it was people like Senator George McGovern, who shepherded the idea of a World Food Program into reality. This long struggle between humans and their natural environment, human beings have been putting their thumbs in the scale in ways big and small, tipping that balance in our favor. So I'll say it again, we are winning the long game in the fight to we asked ourselves, can we end hunger in the face of population growth? And we answered a resounding yes. We asked ourselves, can we end hunger sustainably in the face of population growth? We wrote a playbook, and we're starting to roll that out. We asked ourselves, can we end hunger sustainably and nutritiously in the face of population growth? And that's the mission that we're currently on. Human beings have built a doomsday bunker for plant genetic material in the frozen Arctic of Norway. We are harnessing the power of the big data revolution to guide our tractor through satellite precision. And organizations like the World Food Program are using blockchain technology. That's the stuff of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to deliver humanitarian assistance and improve the efficiency of their supply chains. We have thrown everything that we have at the problem of hunger and it's finally starting to stick at scale. But we're entering into the fourth quarter. And many a game, as you know, have been lost here. And here in the fourth quarter, our progress in the fight to end hunger has collided head on with a rise in global conflict. 
former executive director of the World Food Program, Josette Sheeran, once wrote, hungry people do one of three things. They revolt, they migrate, or they die. And we're seeing all three happen in abundance today. There has been a dramatic rise in the number of fragile states around the world. Some 60% of the world's hungry people live in conflict-affected countries, and 75% of stunted children live in those same places. But here's what's so critically important. This collision between hunger and conflict forces us to acknowledge the root political causes of hunger, something that we've long ignored or at least underappreciated. Hunger has always been a technical problem. How do we grow more? Better. But we've done away with those technical barriers in the first three quarters, and the only remaining hurdle to ending hunger for good is abundantly political. And so we've got to do two things. First, we simply have to spend the dollars to scale up what we know works, recognizing that investments in global food security are among the most cost-effective uses of our limited resources in this world. And second, we have to shout from the rooftops that there is a link between global hunger and global instability. Because once we accept that food security is fundamental to peace and security, we are forced to do something about it in ways we haven't before. It's not about doing more than the next donor on moral or economic grounds. It's not about making an investment in agriculture just to tick a box. In the fourth quarter, food security becomes a pillar of global stability, and it absolutely has to, because that's how we finally get the job done. Albert Einstein's brain was dissected in 1955. Now, the world wouldn't find out for another 20 years or so. When the news broke that a scientist had been secretly studying Einstein's brain, museums and universities around the world flocked to get a piece of action. But amid this debate, a renowned paleontologist quietly recorded this profound thought. He said, I'm somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. I think about this every single day of my time. Because an even greater number of people have died from hunger. And here's what I know to be true. The next big idea that changes the course of humanity, the next Einstein-sized idea, may come from an unsuspecting place. But it will not come from the mind of a child who's stunned. We are the zero hunger generation. We are the first generation in human history capable of watching hunger stop. And think about what that means in practice. Because human beings have been on this planet for 150,000 years, and for the first 149,950, the baseline condition for our species has been poverty, hunger, and desperation. And yet here you are, it's 2018, you're in an auditorium in Dallas, you're fully aware of the problem, and you have all the tools to get the job done. In the long arc of human history, when we choose to take that critical step back, we see that the world has never been more full of promise.
So first of all, I'm not sure how many of you um, listened a few episodes ago when we actually discussed a lot of the topics um, that were brought up in the TED Talk that I just um, played for you all. Um, However, um, a lot of the topics that were just brought up, um, we actually sort of touched upon in um, a previous podcast that talked about common misconceptions um, about uh, that come about in news um, predominantly um, regarding world poverty. And so I just would like to talk a little bit more about um, these misconceptions and how they really are um, holding us back from having more um, from from having more progress. Um, with um, the whole stance of global poverty because um, when there's misconceptions about something, um, oftentimes things don't get done because people don't know the full situation. So um, uh, as we all know, um, just using the United States as an example, um, a common, uh, widely known fact is that many Americans are misinformed. There's misinformation and fake news all over the place constantly. Um, I know that when I go to check the news in the morning, I never know what's real and what's not. And that's a problem. Um, And so it's nobody's fault for being misinformed, um, but sometimes it takes some deeper um, looking, deeper searching, like deeper research to find the true stories, um, such as the stories um, like the ones that are talking about the fact that global poverty and world hunger are actually getting much better. We are on, um, you know, we are we are on our way to alleviating these problems. Um, yet, so often, I think that it's really perceived in the media that um, we are not making good strides um, toward fulfilling these goals um, toward alleviating global poverty and world hunger. Um, so I think this is a problem that um, major news outlets focus on stories that surround um, stories about poverty, stories about hunger and the violence that comes from poverty and hunger. Um, and they, they tend to focus on these types of stories when in reality, um, these types of stories are far less frequent than the data that's actually showing a lot of progress, um, being made in the world in regards to global poverty and world hunger. So in moving forward, the next time you read an article, the next time you hear a statistic or a piece of data about global hunger or global poverty, um, check legitimate websites, check the Borgen Project, um, websites that and organizations that are providing legitimate news about world poverty and legitimate updates that are authentic and providing real news that about things that are actually going on in the world and the the true state of global poverty. And that really is why we come to this podcast, why why the Borgen Project is fighting is to um to 
to work to end global poverty, but also to provide awareness on the true state of global poverty because there are so many people that are misinformed um, around the country and all around the world. So with all of that being said, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Um, Tune in next week. Um, It will be one of the last episodes. Um, and so it, it'll be a good one. It'll probably be a little bit, um, of a longer episode, um, and we'll be delving into some other issues, um, related to global poverty. Um, but thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode and I will see you next week. Bye.